Um, okay, so Kristen taught through Sermon on the Mount last time. This is really Jesus kind of bringing in this new kingdom. Things are looking different now. We've had the Old Testament, and we've seen the nature of God be real. All the attributes of who God is in his character, in his unconditional love, in his justice, in his wrath, in his holiness. We've seen it play out in real time. In real time. We've literally watched the whole landscape of what the New Testament will be in the foreshadowing of Christ be because you've had slaves in bondage set free over and over and over. Now, I've just got to give this sidebar for any of you out here who are um, psychology junkies or love the brain or anything like that. But as a therapist, this is my jam. And what I love is we are, we are constantly looking for and we want this quality of life, this whole life. When I'm dealing with a client, what do they want? They're in there because they want to be living in quality of life. And something is keeping that from them, a person, an experience, an internal label or identity that's a lie that they're believing. And so in order to get the fruit, in order to have a fruitful therapeutic experience, we're really getting a bunch of things in play from their past to think more holistically about their life, to see things from a mind, body, soul perspective, and to make sure all those things are are checking at the same time and green lights at the same time. In order to do that, from a neurological perspective, your left brain and your right brain have to talk to each other at the same time. So for example, um, this is what's interesting to me. So your left, the left side of your brain, who would, you, would, who would in here would say they're more left brain wired? They are logical, practical, things are black and white, they need to make sense, you love the rules, you love a checklist. Uh-huh, okay, a lot, actually. Other side, writers. Creatives, dreamers, visionaries, don't you kind of all, whatever, I can go with the flow, whatever, I can see it. So, so look, look at this. So the Old Testament is, is just for you, right-brainers. It, it is this story. It, it is very supernatural. It is miracles and crazy encounters, and it, it triggers all these parts of things that are not rational. They don't make sense. How did this happen? So right-brainers are all on board with that. But then we get to the the New Testament, and it's now practical and logical. And you are literally being told, here's what you do now. You have all this stuff of who God is, what what do you do with it? And so what I love is because we never need to separate the Bible. It is one whole piece. So it literally allows us, when we think of it like that and we read it like that, to have a whole person experience that connects all of our body into one whole piece. It all starts to make sense. And we literally can rewire, which Romans 12, 2 calls uh, renewing our mind. We renew our mind by, trans- we transform by renewing our mind. That's what that means. It means that synapses are connecting between both parts of the brain and they're talking together and they're making one whole belief. And it's fascinating to me that God set this up with our bodies neurologically to connect to scripture because what other power gives us that? Every other bit of messaging and information in the world is subjective. It's a one-dimensional view. Even all of the other religions are one-dimensional views. Christianity is the only religion that offers a God who became flesh, died, and rose again. It's the only religion in the world that, that offers a God who became us to connect to us because he loved us so much. That he gave his life for us. So we would never doubt again that we would live forever with him. And so you see all of these parts connecting and moving. And here's Jesus showing up going, okay, you've heard about who I am, but now I'm going to show you who I am. And how you, in your simple, mortal, frail body, can connect to me. In your own little subjective world where we only know what we know. We really do. We only know what we know. That's why we need other people. And here we usher in our Savior. About the age of 30, he starts to 
preach. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, is really one of his first sermons that he gives, if you want to call it that. Um, it, it's really, he wasn't directing the Sermon on the Mount to large groups of people. That was not his goal. His, he really was talking, if you go back and read the, the context, he was just talking to a few. And then people were, of course, he knew that, were overhearing and listening and people started to gather. But right after that, as we move into Matthew 8 and 9, you're going to see him to begin to do healings and miracles. That's when all of this begins. And then chapter 10 is uh, when he calls the 12 disciples and they start to travel more. They start to travel more. But then we catch up in Matthew 12. You can turn there or it's going to be on the slide for you. And we start to see the first, um, one of the first public teachings that Jesus gets. And specifically, uh, one of the, well, the, the first in religion, he's in the synagogue when he gives this. So he is surrounded by religious leaders. So the first time we see this interaction with him and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And it gets, if you read, you know, in there 11, 12, it gets dicey real quick. And in this particular passage, we're, we're coming up on, Jesus has been in the synagogue and he's just healed. He's done a healing with a, a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees see this and what happens? They don't say anything outright. They're not that dumb. But they think it. Like, who is this guy? I believe he is. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, kind of calls it out. And the Pharisees are basically trying to say, well, you're just doing that through Satan. You're using the power of Satan, Beelzebul, to heal that, that person. And he basically, um, he doesn't argue with them, but as Jesus does so beautifully and, and as he speaks, always very often in paradox, very often almost as though he's speaking out both sides of his mouth, but then it comes together. He just starts to ask questions. Well, if it's not Satan, basically he lands on this. If it's not Satan, then who is it of which I do this miracle? And then he goes on to say in Matthew 12, starting in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I've started here with a a very peculiar passage for a reason. Because I want us to know what this passage means. And I want you to see how it really starts to kick off the kingdom within. And that's the title of this message for us is the kingdom within. And I've chosen five different attributes that help us know that the Holy Spirit is working in our life and what is happening. What does it look like from this kingdom outside to become this internal kingdom of the Spirit dwelling within us? That we are the kingdom of God in here. And Jesus is flipping this. He's introducing this whole idea and concept that it's now about the heart, which is what we walked through last week. And now you're going to see him teach through parables and stories of how do you know? What's the fruit? And he kicks off with a bang. Because the first way that you know that you have the Holy Spirit is you are repentant. You are able to say, I am a repentant person. And I'm going to get to what that really means in just a moment. But this is the story he chooses to tell. And I wanted to put this one on the table because I want there to be no question as we engage the world around us as Christians. I want you to have confidence in why you believe what you believe and the clarity of Scripture. And the main um, misconception about this passage, this is where we get people talking about the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? There's this one sin. I don't know about you, but I remember being in youth group and somebody saying, talking about this, and then kids just saying, oh, I, the unforgivable sin is, is suicide. The unforgivable sin is when you kill yourself. And I remember somebody just saying it just like that. And so I thought all through my 20s as a grown woman, that that was true. I just thought that. I just assumed that. I thought, 
Now, why? Why did I think a 16-year-old knew that? But I remember that someone in our church, um, there had been a suicide in our church, and so this was kind of a hot button. This was being talked about more and more, and um, more awareness of mental health was really given rise in the 80s and 90s. I'm aging myself, but that really, I mean, we didn't even have counselors until the 80s. Licensed counselors were not even a thing until the 80s. So you can see this hasn't been a big thing in the church, although it should be because it is real. And so I digress. But Jesus is very clearly from the, from the get-go drawing a hard line. And the reason I want us to go into this is not because it's comfortable. I don't want to talk about the hard lines of Jesus. I want it to be nice and blurry. And gray, and I, I want it to be easy, and I, and I don't want there to be the situation where anyone would would not get to heaven. And and a lot of the world believes this, but this is not what Scripture says, and this breaks my heart. But I want us to see it clearly. Okay, so what does he say? What does he say? Now, instead of asking what the particular sin is, we've got to go about this another way. The better question is, what is Jesus showing us about himself. What is he showing us about forgiveness in general? Not what is the sin that's unpardonable. But what is Jesus showing us about forgiveness? Well, let's just look at that for a minute. Look at 31. 31a. The first part of that verse. Therefore, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Okay, stop. So, every sin will be forgiven. All right, so just for that, sit for a moment. Because what we just did was we just destroyed the argument that there is an unforgivable sin. So Jesus is saying, that's not a real thing. But let's keep going. It goes deeper than that. Let's look at 32a. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So even more grace, even more love. You can, you can speak against me. You can say you don't believe in me. Even that can be forgiven. But what is it that he is specifically saying? Now, am I making this up? Please, am I making this up? Is this right here in text? But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What is the thing that separates us because, oh, Lord, help us see. Look, justice cannot be written off. Jesus did not <laughs> come in here and say, look, I am fully love. I am fully able to love you and forgive you. And end of story. You're, you're good. Go about, your, go about your day. He came in and he said, I am fully able to love you, forgive you of everything. And when I do, something has to change. Something about your life has to change or you're not going to know. How would anybody know? How would you know? So look very carefully. What is it that separates? What is the gap? It is the Spirit. Anyone who denies or rejects the Holy Spirit. Every external action is forgivable. So I want us to remember this. Every external behavior, action is forgivable. But if we resist the Holy Spirit leading us to repentance, there is no sin that is forgivable. Now, I'm going to give you some more because that's not enough just to, just to uh, chew on. I want you to think particularly about what this would look like. What type of person would, would get to this point where God's love and forgiveness has been obvious to them. They have seen it in creation. Maybe they've been to church their whole life, grew up in the church. But somewhere along the way, there was something that happened, bitterness, I don't know, uh, hurt, pain, and it, and it just turned them off. And they started to doubt it more and more, more and more, and they stopped coming to church altogether. And then 10 years down the road, they're just, they're done. They're done. They don't want any more to do with Christianity, and they've rejected it, and they've moved on. Well, Hebrews 6 
tells us what this looks like. Hebrews 6, um, let's start in 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now look at the description here of these people. They've been enlightened. They're smart. Maybe they went to seminary. Maybe they read a bunch of commentary. They know the Bible by heart. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted grace to some extent. There is a universal grace that we all get, that we don't get what we deserve. I think we all as humans get that to some capacity. But, but there's a very big difference between you tasting something and consuming something. I can just taste something, but not bring it into my body. They have tasted the goodness of the word. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? They've been to church. They've watched people with the Holy Spirit, and they've adapted to some of those behaviors. They do some of those things because they think that's what's going to make them right and get into heaven. So they've shared in some of that, but it's never become their spirit. And so very first off, I just want us to know, how do we know that we are Christian? (laughs) What is Jesus saying? We have repentance in our heart. We have repentance in our heart because Isaiah 118 does tell us that our sins are scarlet, but they will be white as snow. Jesus is shifting the context here. From external to internal, don't forget that. And the Holy Spirit's job is to tell us where we are wrong. But if we resist being wrong, we refuse to be healed. And this is what Jesus is talking about. This is the person who has put them on the outside, not of his willingness to forgive them, but his ability to know. And I know that sounds contrary to what you want to hear and even to what you hear in church. But we've got to know that justice still stands. God is just and holy and right. And this has to become real to us. Real to us. It has to matter. Things have to change in our life. There has to be a difference because let's look at what repentance is. Acts 26, 18, if you wanted to make a note there. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, so that they may turn from darkness to light and may turn from Satan to God. That's a great definition of repentance. Please say it again. Yes. Acts 26, 18. You see the actual turning. So the root of that word literally means to turn around. Something was dark, now is light. So what does that look like for us? So just ask yourself right now, how do you know that's happened for you? Do you know that's happened for you? Can you look at things in your life that were in the dark, in secret, in hiding, but they are now in the light, they are exposed, they are accountable? Okay, that's a sign of repentance right there. Can you look at the things that it, I can, that I have done that look like more like Satan than God? Yeah. And I have turned away from some of those things. Turned away from some of those things. Was it, does it mean that I'm not still tempted in that way to doubt God? Oh my goodness, no. All the time. Tempted, yes. But y'all, I am telling you, there is such, when we keep repenting, when we just keep believing that that's available to us, there is healing. There is real healing. And I will tell you that in my 30s, there were parts of me that I never thought I would break. I mean, I could not see a way forward in some of the habits of my life that were so vile. Not even the stuff I do externally, but the internal thoughts that I was having. And I'm just telling you, walking into my 40s, not anything that I have done I have been freed. I don't, I literally don't think those things anymore. 
They don't even come to my mind first. But I had to keep turning and turning and turning and bringing the dark to light and bringing the dark to light. And now let me leave you with this little bit moving, moving to the next point. <clears throat> if you are, and, and if you're talking to someone who is afraid or anxious that they have committed the unforgivable sin, I want you to encourage them to celebrate that anxiety <laughs> because there is no way you can feel that without the Spirit. So if someone is worried that they have actually done that at all, they have the Spirit speaking to them, nudging them, drawing them. You, can't, you, won't, you don't feel sorry about that if you don't have the Spirit. You don't feel anxious. You don't feel worried. You don't even think about it without the Spirit. So be encouraged by that a little bit. And encourage others and know that this is not about a sin. This is not about a one particular sin. This is a posture of the heart. This is a posture of the heart. All right, secondly, second attribute. Jump over to Matthew 16. You know you have the kingdom when you are real. And by real, I mean authentic. And honest and just where you are at is where you're at. And you're not trying to be anything for anybody. You're not earning anybody's approval. You're not comparing your spiritual journey to anybody else's spiritual journey. You're just where you are. And you're honest about that. That is awesome. That is awesome. Look at Jesus talking about it in Matthew 16. Starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ooh, it's one of my favorite passages. Because it reminds me of a season of my life where my whole faith, it wasn't that I wasn't a Christian. I was a Christian, saved and going to heaven when I died, but... I was fake. I was not real. I was just pretending to act like and be like all the other Christians around me, hoping that it would change me or that I would, people would believe that. I've shared this story, I think, before in Bible study and to some of you personally, but I married, this is one of the parts of my story with my marriage. I've been married 20 years and our marriage is totally different. It's awesome. But I married Justin thinking he was so good and a virgin and all the things I wanted to be and that by marrying him and attaching to that idea, that concept, that I might become that or that people would believe that I was good. <laughs> so fake. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God, it was that I did not believe him and he had not become mine. And so I could tell you what everybody else was saying he was. I could tell you who everybody else said he was, but if you were to look at me in the, in the face and say, but Casey, who do you say he is? I'd probably given you some cheesy, you know, well, my testimony is I was saved on April the... No, it's not what, that's not the question. Is he real to you? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Not just your savior, is he your Lord? And I think that's the big shift we make over our spiritual journey. I really do. As we're working out this salvation and we're all different, we're all at a different place, but he's our Savior. He's your Savior once and for all. That's it. Done. One time. There's your party. But now, the maturity, the Christian faith is he becomes my Lord. The Lord of my life. And that's to Simon's credit, and he doesn't get much, but <laughs> he does say Son, I mean, you are Christ, the son of the living God. But I want you to look at um, one interesting component here. There's a name change, and I love that part. 
I love that part because we have given ourselves names and labels and people have said things about us and we think that religion is one thing. We think that our faith is one thing and that we get older and we start to have really hard times happen and things, you know, cause us to doubt and question. And uh, somewhere along the line, I think that something about our name shifts. Those messages inside that we're saying become what God is saying about us, not what other people are saying, not what even I'm saying, because it's not flesh and blood that reveals this to us. So I want you to think about that for a moment. Are you real? Are you an authentic believer? Has this been true of you? And here's how you know. Has your name changed? Are you still who your parents said that you were? Or that mean girl in high school? Or your boss who was a jerk? Or are you still the messages that you say to yourself, I'm unworthy, I'm, I'm not qualified, I'm, I'm ugly, I'm whatever, I, I can't do this, I can't do that. Do you still say those things to you? Well, guess what? That's not true. Because that's flesh and blood. And flesh and blood cannot reveal the truth to you. So if you're saying it, if somebody else is saying it, that's how you, you hold it up. It doesn't mean that when my friend Kristen is talking to me that she's not saying the truth, but I've got to hold her words because she's flesh and blood. And she wants me to hold it up to the truth of the light of who God is and say, is this true? Who is revealing this to me? So when you're saying, am I real? Is this a real internal reality for me? Who is revealing that reality and how are you building on that reality? Because watch what would happen to Peter, which in the Greek is Petros, the rock. Now think about a rock in your life. What, is, what are the rocks? Because those are the things that are down deep. That's the stuff that can hold all the other stuff in your life. And all the stuff that needs to go is the stuff that's not on the rock. That's not built up. So in other words, if there is something in your life that you cannot build upon, it's gone. It's gone. So, so if, I mean, I can build upon my faith. I can build upon the word of God. I do that through my marriage. I look at my marriage and I look at the parts of it that are not buildable. There is no growth there. There will be no fruit there. And I get rid of it. Criticizing my husband? Can't build on that. Can't build on it. It's done. It's not, it's, it's not real. It's not real. It's my insecurity. It's my anxiety. It's not real. It's not building into anything. My friendships? What, what's going to be helpful and give the most grace? I can build on that in my friendships. But me just gossiping about somebody because I just need to hear myself talk? Can't build on it. So as we start to do this, I want you to just think about that work in, in your life. Look at what Jesus is saying. Are you real? And here's how you know that you are real. Ooh, now going on to the big one. Make sense. Come on, Casey, kick it night here. All right, this is going to be hard. So go with me. So the kingdom lives with, within you, within us. When we never give up on a relationship. Mm. You're already saying, whoa, what about that one? <laughs> what about that one? That's okay. There's grace for all that. But let's, let's go further, shall we? Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, immediately, my guard goes up. I don't know about you, but when it comes to how someone has wronged me, and listen, this is not dismissing that the wrong was wrong. Jesus never does that. 
Not once. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't diminish it. He doesn't dismiss it. If, there's no way I'm going to trust you. To I'm not going to listen to you. If you are my friend coming into a pain and a wound and a hurt that is real and you start trying to fix me and telling me it's that, you know, well, just forgive. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not what Jesus is about to say either. He's giving us a way. He's giving us a process. He's giving us something holy and righteous and good that we can actually follow. So this is such good news. We don't have to question how to do this. We have actual practical ways but it's harder. It's harder because people really have hurt us and people really have wronged us out of their own sin. That's real. So if your brother or sister has wronged you like this, you need to go to them. And who's, who's there in that first scenario? That first phase of confrontation or, or rebuke? Who's, who's present? Just the two of you. Just the two of you. Well, how many of you have jumped the gun on that one many a times? How many of you go to someone else to make sure (laughs) that you're still right? Me, I have done this. I just need to talk to you, other person not involved in this scenario, to make sure I'm in the right here to go talk to this person. I'm all about good counsel. We need it. It's about to point to that. That's phase two. I do that for a living. But, but what I'm saying is there is a way that you can trust. You can trust this way first. If you know somebody has hurt you, go to them. Go to them. Now, tell them the fault. Say it kindly. I could go on and I can't go off on this. I have a whole message on reconciliation I'd love to do, but we'll get there one day. Uh, Say it kindly to them. Say, um, I feel like this is happening, but you know, you correct me if I'm wrong or something. You don't have to just barrel in because this is why you don't barrel in. You've got to be ready. You cannot just be hurt and go the same day. And here's why. If he listens to you, You have gained your brother. Okay, first of all, if he listens to you, which means you have to be able to communicate well. You have to have evidence and and speak clearly. You can't be relying on your emotions and your feelings to guide it. You have to be able to articulate what it is you're saying has been the wrong. And until you have that and you've chilled out, you don't need to confront. Because Because why? What is the whole goal and the whole purpose of this. Say it again. Thank you, Jennifer. Yes. To gain your brother. Gain him. Back to you. So if you know that there's a relationship and that's not what you want, don't go. Don't go until you're ready for that. Now, get ready for there to be tension and chaos in your life until you do. But, but the, the aim and the goal is even the hardest of hard offenses I am not giving up on. I'm going to go in, but my, my aim and my goal is to gain my brother, gain my sister. Now, here's where it gets sticky. But, but let's say they don't listen. So now I take one or two others along that every charge may be established by what? What needs to be established? Back to Matthew. Y'all, y'all look back. Matthew 18 and 16. What needs to be established? That every charge may be established by the off. Evidence. So who would have evidence to a, to a sister or brother's wrong? If it's not you, who else would have evidence that could help you? Would it be your pastor? Would it be your coworker? Would it be the elders? Would it be another group of friends? Probably not. The only people that would have evidence are people that are close to that person. So in, in grace, in following this, I would not go to my friends to confront her. I go to her friends. 
and I say, am I just m missing this here? Am I, I've gone to her, this is what happened. Have you seen any evidence here? And they would say yes or no. Then you, if they say no, you've got to go think. Well, then I'm probably just, maybe I made that up. Maybe I was hurting. I need to think through that. I need to pray through that. They say, yeah, we see this. You take them with you. And you go. This, the reason this is sticky is because we, we really want our stuff to be private. <laughs> and the Bible is so clear that our relationships are communal. And we don't want to bring people into our junk. Because it could backfire. You could get there and that person could go, oh yeah, well I did that, but guess what you did to me in front of those two and three people. And then you're like, oh man, that did not go the way I planned. You've got to be ready for that communal living. It's accountable. It's sticky. It's good. It leads to restoration and peace. So if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. This is when you go to the, the church leaders. You talk to them about it. You get their wisdom. You get their counsel. And if, they, and, and if this person refuses to listen, let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. All right, look. Did Jesus love the Gentiles and the tax collectors? Who is Matthew again? <laughs> so this, this cannot mean that we write him off. It cannot. It does not hold. I want it to. I want it to. That would be better for me. That would be much more comfortable. I do not want to deal with the people who have hurt me and offended me. Because what if I'm wrong? What if, what if? So we need to think about what that means. Because I think um, there's been some distortion throughout church teaching. That this means we just excommunicate them and we're done with them. But that's not who the Gentiles or the tax collectors were to Jesus at all. He actually made a way for them. He made a way. He always had his door open to them, always. And that's how we are to be in relationships. So we never give up on a relationship. We always have a door open. Well, Jesus would go on, and if you'll just glance really briefly in Matthew 18, at verse, starting in verse 23, you'll see a story that he goes on to, to tell more about this. So he basically gave the practical, here he is doing the right and left brain thing. He gives the logical left brain, this is what you do to save a relationship. And then he tells a story about why this is so important. And if you just go all the way down to the end of that little sermonette in verse 35, this is the big kicker. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, that's the take-home message for the disciples and for everyone listening. That this forgiveness has to be real. It has to be from the heart. It's gut. It's a part of who you are. But what is, what is happening in the story, and I'm just going to quickly give you a rundown because it's important. You have a king who is collecting debts from all of his, his servants. And they all have a debt with him. This one servant has, oh, what is it, 10,000 talents. Okay, the first servant on the scene has 10,000 talents. Well, that's an enormous amount of money. In our modern-day currency, it would be a trillion dollars. It's a lot of money. So it's impossible. Basically, the whole point that Jesus is making, it's an impossible sum of money for this servant to pay back. The king says, you need to pay it back. What does the servant do? The servant gets on his knees and he begs him and he says, please have pity on me, king. I cannot pay this back. So the king, having pity on him, releases the debt. He releases, he releases him from the debt. But then what does that servant go do? Then that servant runs into one of his servants. And that servant owes him a, a lot less money. What was it? A hundred denarii. So a denarii was, uh, let's see, I have it. Well, one talent is about $10,000. And then a denarii is a day's wage. And the average salary then was 300 denarii. So you see the big gap here. So it'd be like you got Jesus releasing the debt from us. Then we're out there and we've got these friends who have hurt us, but we don't want to release it. We don't want to let it go. So we make them pay. And Jesus is saying... Hold up and let that be a warning that you may not have the spirit in you if you act like this. 
Because if you're acting more like that, you're moving the wrong direction. That's why he says in verse 35, my fathers will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Look for this in your life. Look for this in your life. And listen, we're only going to refuse to forgive um, when we feel superior. That's it. The only reason we do not forgive people is if we feel like we would never do that. We would never do that. All right, quickly through the next. Oh, I think I've got it. Oh, yeah, good. Okay. How do we forgive? Big one. You find the answer in 1827. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. Now, pity, that word means a heart that goes out. A heart that goes out. And what I love about this is that Jesus is telling us the very first thing that you do to, in order to forgive, even the worst hurt, is you identify as much as you can with your offender. You have a heart that goes out to them that says, okay, I can't imagine doing that particular sin, but I am a sinner. I cannot remove myself from the category of humanity. I can't put them somewhere that I'm not. I have to try to identify with them. And so I want us to be really careful when we do this because our comfy zone is anything that's one-dimensional and subjective. We want to make it make sense to us, and so we will say broad things when people hurt us, like, they're a liar. Well, they lied to you, but, but them being a liar, that keeps it way too out here and not enough right here where you can identify so people are not caricatures, okay? Make them right, make it right here. We're three-dimensional. We have all these different reasons. There's a reason they lied to you. Try to find the reason and identify to that. Oh, I remember when I was in a situation like that, I can identify. That's what pity does, a heart that goes out. But then what does the king do? He doesn't put them on a pay plan. He absorbs it. Now look, there's a loss. Do you, do you understand the forgiveness? Someone loses every time there's a loss. Somebody eats it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Is This isn't about, like you have more debt than you could possibly imagine. And it's got to go somewhere. It doesn't dissipate. It goes somewhere. So I'm absorbing it through my blood. I am going to bleed for you and absorb into my pores every sin that you have committed and will commit. All of them. Done. I have taken it on myself. It didn't go away. And then the third one, absolve the requirements. This is the hard one. This is that action statement. Because we can do those two in our heart. We can do the other two in our heart. But the proof is in the third one. The proof that forgiveness is really taken hold and it's real to you is that you no longer need anything from them and they don't owe you anything. And these, I'm talking, I, I mean, my example, and I've shared this with y'all before, is you know that I was a victim of rape at 15. And 10 years, that experience dominated my whole world. It's all I wanted was for this guy to acknowledge that he raped me and for somebody to believe me if I were to say it. And it made me so angry and bitter and cold and resentful. And I could put on a great face and go to church and nobody would know. But you see, I was in bondage. I was in jail. And, and honestly, that desire and that need dictated everything that I did. Every relationship I was in, every choice I made was dictated by this guy. <laughs> I knew that the Lord had done a work in me when I no longer needed him to apologize. But now that was many years ago. So now let's bring it full circle. What does that look like for us? Ooh, I got a husband. And he does not fit in my pretty box. My kids don't fit in my box. I have a lot of standards and, and expectations and requirements. I would like them to please meet. And they don't. And what am I going to do? Am I going to absorb it? Am I going to take their debt onto myself? Or am I going to make them pay? 
You see, it's just, it's little, it's these little tiny things in our, with our spouse, in our friendships. And I'll quickly move on. You hot? I'm burning up. <laughs> the fourth one, I have radical faith. Now, a lot of us in here, all of us in here, I would imagine, have faith. You would not be at Bible study if you didn't have a measure of faith. But I want you inside your heart just to ask yourself, how radical is it? How off the wall, crazy, spontaneous, sacrificial is it? Matthew 19, 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect... Go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, what's happening here? This is not just a story. We actually made it out to be a story about money. And it is about money to some extent. Jesus is very clear that people with a lot of money are going to have a hard time getting into heaven. Why? Why, why is that harder for people with a lot of money? They're comfortable? What, is that what you said, Jane? They, yes. Bingo. They feel self-sufficient. They pretty much have everything that they need. There's not a lot of need. Not a lot of lack there. He's literally saying, people with great wealth, it's impossible. But he's saying more than that. He's saying more. It's not just impossible because look at this. Because we have someone with great wealth who's actually intrigued. So here's the thing about the rich young ruler. He gets a bad rap by some pastors, but that's not necessarily the case. This story is told over again in Mark chapter 10. And in that version of Mark, Mark actually says that Jesus saw the rich young ruler and he loved him. I love this. He loved him. It doesn't say that very often. Jesus loves, but then when you pick out these people that Jesus really looks at and loves, it should, we should take note of that. It leads me to wonder if the rich young ruler was not this horrible person that was just you know, unwilling to deny his wealth. I think he, he was born into money, and I think he probably handled his money well. Because why do I think that? I mean, some people crush people in their power and their money. I don't think he did that. Um, oh, you, you know, what, what uh, enter life will keep the commandments. All, he lists, Jesus doesn't list them all, the t- even the Ten Commandments. He just gives some. But, but he says, I've kept them. What? So this tells me something about this guy. He's a pretty outstanding guy. He just also happens to be really wealthy. But his wealth in and of itself is not evil. His wealth in and of itself is not intrinsically bad. He hasn't necessarily been out sinning and living this rebellious lifestyle because of his wealth. We don't have any of that evidence. All we see is a young man saying, what do I still lack? And this is the point of the message. What is it that I still lack? And I want you to think about that in your own life. What is that thing in me? What is that tension? What is that rub? What is that struggle that I feel all the time like I still lack? Now, it could be money. 
It could be like you never feel like you have enough money, and so you're obsessed about it. And when you're depressed, you go shopping. And so we're on either side of the spectrum there. You see the difference that Jesus makes. He moves it from if you would enter life into if you would be perfect. What does that mean? Oh, you want to know what it would mean if, to be perfect. That's what you're asking. Because the rich young ruler says, but I've done all these things. Now what do I need to do? Oh, you want to know what it is to know me. This is a salvation message. Is what this is. You want to know what perfection is? It's intimacy with me. It's not about the things that you have and don't have. It's knowing me. Perfection is being one with me because you're not perfect. You'll never be perfect. I'm perfect, and I need to stand in the gap for your imperfection. And if you want to do that, you've got to be willing to sacrifice everything you just told me about. And follow me. Are you willing to do that? And he went away, and the word is, um, he went away sorrowful. Now, oh gosh, this is so good. Time, I need you to be on my side. There is um, one other time that this word is used. Do I have that up here? I think so. Yeah, okay, good. The same grief is also in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, this guy is not a bad guy. He's just grieving the reality of what it's going to take to be saved, of the radical faith that he must have that goes against everything he knows and everything that people are telling him. It is like trying to get a camel through a needle to have this kind of faith. There is no way it can happen without an intersection with a holy, saving, supernatural God. There's no way. There's no way we can get a rain on our money without God, and there's no way we can know him perfectly and intimately without God, without the Spirit. And he walks away grieved. And, and honestly, he may come. I don't know. Maybe he turned his whole life over. We don't, we don't know that he didn't give it all away. But the moral of the story and what Jesus is saying is it's not enough to just repent. That's the life part. You want life? Repent of your sin. And do the, do the thing that you know to do. That's what he was doing. There's more. Jesus is saying you, you can have faith and get into heaven. You can go to church. You go to heaven. Don't worry about it. Don't doubt it. But do you want more? You want more of me? You want more goodness? You want, you want more power? You want more uh, authority over the sin in your life? I've got that for you. But it's going to not be enough just to repent. You're going to have to change the way you relate to even your good things. And this is where the one-two punches. This is where the radical faith is because money is not inherently bad. Our cell phones are not inherently bad. Clothes and nice cars are not inherently bad. Going to church is not inherently bad. Serving in ministry. Those are good things. But they can become something that we cling to as deeply. Watch, listen to this. They can become something that we cling to as deeply and real and true as God, as Jesus clung to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, the, the ruler is looking at uh, money this way. This, he's grieving in the same way. It is not about the money. It is about the loss of everything he holds dear. And Jesus held God dear. It was his identity and his center and his security. And he would hang on a cross and he asked to be let go of it. He asked to be, please, Lord, if this cup can pass from you, please. Those, that's the grief that he felt. And that's the grief this man felt. And that's the grief we should feel about the things that are, have become our center and our world. And we obsess about them. And we need them. And they have become evil. And Jesus is saying, it's not possible with you. It is impossible for you to get a rain on this thing. But with God, everything is possible. 
But you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. You've got to grieve it, be deeply distressed over it, acknowledge it for what it is, and say, are you willing to give it up? Kristen, next slide, please. Jesus is asking us in this radical faith of the kingdom to live like him, to give until it's a sacrifice. So if you are tithing to church, that is awesome. But if that number is not hurting you, it's, it's not radical faith. It's faith. It's not radical. So there's no number. There's no tenth. That's not a thing. That, that, that You don't have to give a tenth of your income. But you, this is all Jesus is asking you. With your kids, with your spouse, at work, the way that you work. Come on now. When we show up to work, are we doing this? Are we just getting through our day? Just surviving? Just doing the, the mediocre average baseline? Or are we giving until it hurts? Are we sacrificial in the way we serve people, in the way we deal with people around us? This is what he's asking us to do every day. And finally, we live a resurrected way of life. Matthew 28, starting in verse 6, there the angel is talking. Jesus has lived his public ministry. He has done what he has come to do, to die, to save us, to take our sin and death, and to give us eternal life. And Mary and Mary are showing up. You know this scene, right? They're showing up at the tomb, and he's gone. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! Can you imagine? Can you just imagine? And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Ooh. Look at what happened. I want you to circle this in your Bible, make a little note. Come and see the place where he lay. This is our life. This is our life every single day, how we live in a resurrected kingdom as though Jesus got up. They went to see the place where he lay. Why? Because they had to be convinced that he was no longer there. The angel's telling them, be convinced. He's not here. So I'm convinced. Are you? I got to believe that. I'm convinced. And then go quickly. Don't waste time. Don't overthink this thing. Don't make Jesus hard or complex. He will speak to you. He will give you the word. Stop overthinking faith. Just do it. Go quickly. There is little time to waste, and you need to tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. you got to talk about Jesus. Why are we scared to talk about Jesus and what he's done for us and in us? They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Can we just be a people who let fear and joy work together instead of against each other? We're always trying to deal with our fear. We're always scared. Well, I can be scared. He knew they were scared because he comforts them first. I love him so much. He could have just said, y'all go, go, go. He said, do not fear. He knew they were scared. This didn't make sense. But they were also joyful at the same time. So can we just choose joy in the midst of fear? Can we still be joyful in the midst of hard times? And they came up and they took hold of his feet. <laughs> and they worshipped him. I missed one. Posture and confident humility. Oh, no I didn't. And they came up. Posture and confident humility. Are you confident to come to the Lord? They didn't, they didn't, he said greetings and they knew. And they didn't stand there and back away. Is that what we're doing? When God starts to speak to us and say, hey, 
I'm taking you to the next thing. I'm taking you to the next level. I'm revealing myself even more. Whoa, 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 whoa. Too fast, too much. I can't do that. I got too much at stake. They didn't. They came up because they are confident. They are confident before the Lord. He's not going to blast them with a lightning bolt when they mess up. He's not waiting to punish us. He's not disappointed in us. Oh, my goodness. Can we get that out of our head? That Jesus actually did the work he said he was going to do. Don't get on a cross. It's not yours to get on. We, we don't need to bear that anymore. We can actually just believe him and go. Confident humility. We grab his feet. We posture ourselves, And when in doubt, we worship. They grabbed his feet. They were humble before him, but they were touching him. They weren't scared to touch him. And they worshipped him. 